over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. It is my delight to have Dr. Constantine Campbell, from now referred to as Con, C-O-N, on the broadcast today. Dr. Campbell completed his doctorate in Greek New Testament and linguistics at, do I pronounce it, Macquarie? Macquarie University? Macquarie, yeah. He is a professor of New Testament studies for the past 14 years. He's taught at Moore Theological College in Sydney and Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. When were you at TED's? Began in 2013 and finished up in 2019. We were in Chicago. I was with Moody for a few years, so that was a little after my time. Uh, Khan is the author of 15-plus books and counting that focus on biblical Greek, the New Testament interpretation, and the Apostle Paul. His book, Paul and Union with Christ, received the 2014 Christianity Today Book of the Year in Biblical Studies. He is also releasing Reading the New Testament as Christian Scripture, a Baker academic publication, and Paul and the Hope of Glory, a Zondervan academic publication, 2020. Con Campbell is the co-chair of Biblical Greek Language and Linguistics for the Society of Biblical Literature, the associate editor of the Zondervan Exegetical Commentary Series. He is an elected member of the preeminent scholarly guild Santorum Novi Testamenti Societas. He is also a professionally trained jazz saxophonist. So that blows all our categories, Con. (laughs) (laughs) A renaissance guy that plays the saxophone. I love it. He is the presenter of two documentaries, and I've watched many of them on uh, YouTube on the life of Paul and Peter. And we'll have information in the show notes where you can go watch Con play the sax in Jerusalem. It's quite a uh, paradigm shift for me. (laughs) (laughs) And he connects Paul and jazz theology. So there you have it. Con, thanks for being on the broadcast. Uh, Thanks so much, Michael. So let's jump right in. First of all, before we look at this very short letter, give me your sort of 30,000 foot view, let's say in 50 words or less of the person of Paul the Apostle. Oh, wow. Well, he is... um a reluctant convert to Christ. You know, the persecutor becomes apostle and becomes a passionate, devoted follower of Jesus, who I think is history's most profound missionary Hmm. and pastor and theologian after Jesus himself. And in fact, I'd say no one has had more influence on Christianity apart from Jesus than the apostle Paul. And because of that, I think the apostle Paul is one of the most influential people in human history. I love it. I love it. And it's a great summary. I think too often uh, we book these New Testament letters and we don't know enough of the context and the background and we, we miss 
the caliber of these individuals. I just finished a reading group on uh, Augustine, and we talked through, you know, after Paul, we probably are going to look at guys like Augustine for being the ones who take the football. But when you look at those maps in the back of our Bibles, Paul was the spearhead. You know, he was the one that took it out of Jerusalem, right? So, Oh, he sure did, yeah. Yeah, he was tireless, and it's pretty amazing to walk on some of the roads that he traveled by foot. You know, he walked across the whole of Turkey at least twice that we know about. I mean, that's not to mention all the travel that he did by ship. And, you know, just extraordinary how much ground he covered. And we complain when we have to wait in a long line or a long queue to the airport or for security or we get or we yeah. get delayed one day on a plane. We're like apoplectic. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. He wintered at Malta. I read that in one sentence going, oh, dear. Spent a whole winter oh, on an island waiting for a ship. Yeah, we wouldn't yeah, do so that, well, would we? You no, know, and that was after two weeks of horrible storms at mm-hmm. sea, you mm-hmm. know. So, yeah, I can only imagine how awful that would be. Well, let's talk a little bit about this letter called the letter to Philemon. We have, uh, interestingly, it's a very short letter, by the way, we count verses. But I find it interesting that all of his letters, excepting Philemon, have a very long Christology. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. And it's partly because it is such a short letter and it's a personal note. It's not a letter to the churches. It's a letter to an individual, and of course, we have a few of his letters to individuals. One of the things I love about Philemon is there's a really clear point and purpose, and that I think, and we can talk about that in a minute, but I I think that's fairly clear, and it's performing a function that's very distinct so that, you know, Paul is just not doing his usual thing where he goes to town and does a doxology and the proper you know, theologizing about Christ, the Christology, as you mentioned. But it's clearly there in the background, and it's impossible to read anything Paul writes without seeing this depth of Christological belief operating in his worldview, you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. I think that still comes through in this letter, even though he's not explicit about it. Mm -hmm. It's unique in many ways, but we're talking to one individual about receiving back a a slave, Onesimus, we'll talk about in a moment, which is a fun wordplay. Mm. One observation for your comment, Paul likes to coin words, soon ergon and whatnot. He's got four fellows in this little book, fellow worker, fellow soldier, fellow prisoner, fellow workers. Have you given any thought to that? And why is that endearing? Is that, you know, part of the same family? We're part of the same effort? What's your take on it, Con? Yeah, I think it comes out of, you mentioned his Christology, a major theme for Paul is union with Christ. And one of the major elements of Paul's union with Christ theology is that If you have union with Christ as a believer and I have union with Christ as a believer, then we have union with each other and we become connected brothers and sisters in Christ, sure, but but also in Paul's language, members of the same body of Christ. So we are different parts of the one body and that means that Paul uses language like fellow prisoner or fellow worker, fellow this, fellow that, to get at that reality. You know, and that's one of the things that I think is going on in Philemon as well, that what Paul appeals to is, you know, this runaway slave, Onesimus, is now Philemon's brother in Christ and members of the same body. 
So that has profound implications for the way Philemon should think about Onesimus, just as it has had for Paul's way of thinking of Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, his co-workers mentioned in verse 24. The request seems to be made, and several commentators sort of distill this down to two points. It's, first of all, he's making a request that Philemon receive this man, Onesimus, back. And we can speculate on what he did wrong, or maybe you've got some more insights about, was he just a runaway slave? Did he steal something? Was, you know, we can dip into that. But it seems at the high level, Onesimus has become a brother in Christ Yeah. to both then Paul and Philemon. And secondly, Philemon owes Paul something, which is a very interesting part of this little note. (laughs) Yeah, I think virtually every detail about this letter has been debated, including Paul's intention. My own view is that the intention is fairly clear. Well, first, the backdrop and the intention are fairly clear, and that is that Onesimus was a slave belonging to Philemon. And at some point, was a runaway slave and at some point encountered Paul either when Paul was conducting ministry in Ephesus, as he did for three years, which is just a hundred miles west of Colossae, where mm-hmm. which is where Philemon lives, or in, in Rome. And Onesimus has become a follower of Christ and Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon. But I think his request is don't just receive him as a brother, but give him his freedom. And this is not explicit in the letter. And so, of course, it's debated. But there are several indications that that's Paul's real intent, like in verse 16, Mm -hmm. that you would take him back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. And, you know, he draws on Philemon's indebtedness to Paul, but it's interesting, he makes it clear, you know, look, I'm not commanding you. This is not something that you have to do, but nudge, nudge, you know, hint, hint. It's fairly clear what Paul would like Philemon to do by his own volition, of course, but Paul's leaning on him, I think, pretty hard to give Onesimus his freedom. It's quite a fascinating set of wordplays throughout this little letter, but I love the way he goes back and forth. So here's a debtor who's yeah. in debt, I'll repay the debt. Oh, yeah. by the way, you owe me. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And so yeah. I wonder if, you know, again, I'm not a New Testament Greek scholar like you. I, I read it, I work with it. But I wonder in the context when this was written and received, uh, what it might have felt like. I kind of, one hand, I see Philemon kind of laughing, sitting back in his chair and laughing. Okay, you busted me, Paul. <laughs> On the other hand, being like, you know, he's got a point. You know, I need to embrace this. And you're right. He gives him an option. It's not like he commands him. But yeah. he, he said, if you understand what the gospel has done to transform you and me, and I'm calling him my brother now, not a slave, then yeah. wouldn't you do the same? Yeah, exactly. And when you consider verse 17 as well, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would me. So that, again, I think is undergirded by Paul's theology that they are bound together in the body of Christ. If Philemon and Paul are partners of one another or members of the same body, then so is Onesimus because he is now part of the same body. So if you consider me a partner, Paul says, welcome him as you would welcome me. It really means that I think Philemon cannot simply regard Onesimus as his property anymore, as his slave, Mm. but he has become a member of the body of Christ. And 
you know, I think there's been a lot of work done recently on this idea of being indebted and so on in the Roman world. And I think it is probably stronger than we may appreciate today. I mean, I think we do have this sense of, you know, if you do someone a favour, sometimes we might feel like, well, I'll, I'll repay that favour. But it was, a, it was a little more weighty, I think, in this context. And there's a kind of tied into the, the sense of the honour and shame culture so that, you know, if Philemon owes Paul something, and it's clear that he does, the Philemon became a believer through Paul's ministry, then really Paul knows and Philemon knows that there's a relational indebtedness. And it's not a kind of, you know, I've got to pay you back sort of thing. It's more that I now have a responsibility to care for your needs and look out for you as sort of reciprocal grace rather than a, a legal indebtedness. But there is a reciprocity there. And I think I think Philemon would acknowledge that and feel that and probably not in a casual way. That's my sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love verse 8 when he writes, therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you. Yeah. Yet. To do what's yeah. right. Right. Yeah. Yet. Yet. You know is right. Yeah. For love's sake, I rather appeal. I love the language because there's that apostolic authority, which he could certainly have said, you know. We also, you know, this is later in Paul's life as he admits in the next phrase, right? I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now a prisoner of Jesus Christ, which that's, the, of course, the double entendre running through here. He's a prisoner of Christ. I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm writing you about a man who I met in prison who came to Christ. You can no longer, quote, imprison him, if I'm not over yeah. overstating the text. Oh, no, I think that's a good point. It's also interesting to note there in verse 9 that when he says, I, Paul, like normally in his letters, and he'll say an apostle of Christ or something to that effect, and he may include a prisoner if it's one of the prison epistles, but he doesn't say apostle here. He says an elderly man. And I think that's also what the beginning of verse 9 is getting at. You know, instead I appeal to you on the basis of love, not out of apostolic authority, even though, you know, I could in my boldness in Christ command you to do mm-hmm. what is right, verse 8. So instead he's putting aside his apostolic, I think, role or in relationship and saying I'm an old man. I'm a prisoner of Christ, and so I'm appealing to you for my son, verse 10, Onesimus, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which, again, is very strong, obviously strong relational language. Yeah. I know a lot is made of it, and I don't want to overstate it, but the wordplay on the name Onesimus being useful, and then we have in verse 11, who formerly was useless but is now useful. Yeah. You got any thoughts on that, Con? Well, I think you're right. I think there is a, a wordplay there, and we know that Paul is quite the wordsmith, so he's probably, yep, not the level of pun, like let me turn your name into a funny quip here, but actually to make a serious point, as Onesimus, as is his name, so will his function be. And once he was useless, so it's interesting that Paul regarded Onesimus as a slave as not being of use really yes, to fight. Yes. Yeah. But now he is useful because he is, you know, he carries the gospel. He's a servant of the gospel, apparently, and useful to them both and useful to the whole body of Christ. I think too that I don't know if you're familiar with John Knox wrote a book on Philemon in 1959, where he 
speculates that, you know, we know that um, shortly after this period or towards the end of the first century, there was a, a bishop of Ephesus by the name of Onesimus. Yes. And uh, he speculates. He speculates you know, he became bishop, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, fascinating. So um, it's a lovely thought, even. Yeah, it's, it's a great, great illustration. Verse yeah. 11, and you pointed this out. I want to expand on it. Formerly useless. Do you think, because Paul would never say a person's useless, but what he's saying yeah. is here was a runaway slave to you had no use as a runaway slave. But now he's yeah. useful, not pejoratively, but he's useful to you, to me, and the kingdom because he's come to Christ. Yeah, it could well mean, the useless part could well mean, yeah, as a runaway slave, he's not performing his function. Or it could mean even as a slave while still working for Philemon, he was useless, not in a literal way, but perhaps in a, you know, a kingdom kind of way. He was no use. He just performed, you know. Yeah, I don't know. It's right. hard to say. I, you know, maybe you're correct there that, um, you know. Well, not not even so much as u- useless as a person, but just because he's yeah. out of sight, he's out of mind, he's gone. There's no use in him yeah. in the sense yeah, that, sense. yeah, speaking derogatorily, I just can't escape in these 25 verses as we count them, the back and forth, prisoner, imprisonment, useless, useful. And I love this. One injection in verse 14, when he says, in effect, by compulsion, but out of your own free will. Yeah. And I got to yeah. wonder, you're the Greek scholar. That's a, quite an invective to say, wait, we're talking about a prisoner. No, nope. but you have the freedom to make a decision. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting. I think it's so respectful of Philemon mm-hmm. and respectful. You know, I think Paul is a, he's kind of a master of navigating Christian values through current culture. So, you know, we can't really appreciate the dynamic of the slave master system in the Roman world. It's very different from the the slavery systems that we're more familiar with in North America or in Europe, you know, more recently in the last few hundred years. But the Roman slavery system was very different and it was um, so ingrained in culture because, you know, up to a third of Roman inhabitants were slaves. So this is a huge part of their culture and a huge shaper of the way people think about other people, you know. And so that cultural strata, you know, between the difference between slave owner and slave is just so imprinted and it's in the air that you breathe and it's just such a part of, and we would look at it now and say, oh, that's horrible, that's disgusting, you should just, you know, it's not a big deal, Philemon should just realise that Onesimus is a, is a brother now, they're equal, they're one in Christ, that sort of thing. But I'm sure in that world it was actually a really huge thing to get your head around, you know, and I'm not even sure I can think of, contemporary parallels, but his acknowledgement there in verse 14 of Philemon's free will and the fact that, you know, Onesimus had belonged to him as kind of property is sort of navigating, look, I'm acknowledging this is the structure that we live in. This is the culture in which we, you know, are having this conversation. But he's, I think, masterfully weaving, you know, the gospel and Christ into that culture in a way that ultimately explodes it, you know, when you really think through all the implications of what Paul is saying, it ultimately blows it apart. But he doesn't just come in heavy-handed and say, you know, you've got to forget that whole system. But he operates within a system that is Philemon's world, 
you know, because how else can he influence and reach Philemon? So I think that's an important lesson for us because we often want to come in, I think, with a world-shattering message of Christ, and it is world-shattering, but if you can't reach people in their world, you know, if it doesn't make sense in their world, then it's very difficult to get any traction at all. So we've got to weave it into the world that people are in and then let the implications, you know, take root, if that makes sense. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer. No, it's great. It's I'm great. not even sure I answered your question. No, it's good processing. A couple of lessons, and I'm always careful in jumping to applications out of texts until we have a, a good firm grasp of you know, the hermeneutic, what's going on there. But one just general observation, Paul's not afraid to call another believer to a good thing. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. That's right. I think that's correct. And we don't know, maybe, who knows, maybe Philemon may have come to the same conclusions himself and maybe Paul Mm. didn't need to write this letter. We don't know. But I think, yeah, Paul sees a need for Onesimus, sees that his past needs to be reconciled or tidied up. You know, he's a runaway slave. He's done something in Rome which is illegal. And, you know, Paul could have said, well, you're away from your master, just be free. And he's like, no, let's reconcile that relationship. Let's go back and actually do this properly. And so for that to take place, Philemon needs to be persuaded to grant Onesimus his freedom. And so Paul asks him to do so. And I think that this is good for it's obviously good for Onesimus. It's good for Paul because Paul wants the benefit of Onesimus's service. But it's also good for Philemon because Philemon is put in a position where he really needs to think through the implications of belonging to Christ now mm-hmm. and what mm-hmm. that means for others. And that is, um, you know, a huge implication for us today, I think, as we continue to allow our relationship with Christ to shape our relationships, but also our understanding of other people. You know, are we are we tempted to fall into systemic ways of categorizing people as lower than ourselves or above ourselves or just other, you know? And I think really this, one of the most important things about this letter from my reading is that it, it doesn't allow us to do that. You know, if mm. a slave can be regarded as a brother, therefore equal in Christ with his master, even if he's not granted his freedom, even if he remains a slave, that's a mind-blowing, yes. that's a mind-blowing reality to grapple with. And how much more can it blow our minds today as we really think through its implications for you know everybody in Christ? What's your take on verse six? And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through mm. the knowledge of every good thing. And I know that one of the more common or well, it's a common, but one of the common interpretations is about financial effectiveness. Paul uses some of these words in Philippians as well. When this Mm -hmm. fellowship of your faith may become effective, how do you unpack that, Con? Yeah, well, you know, the financial angle is interesting because Philemon is clearly a wealthy person. You know, he's he's a slave owner for one, and uh, the church meets at his home in verse 2. So this is a wealthy person. And it may well be a financial thing. And the participation or the fellowship word is used, say, in 2 Corinthians 9 for similar purpose to speak about financial partnership. But it's not unique to that use at the same time. So I actually think Paul uses the 
participation or the fellowship language to indicate that all believers who are praying for Paul or financially contributing to Paul or just encouraging Paul are partners with him in the work that he does. So I don't think that the fellowship or participation language becoming effective necessarily means financial partnership, but actually in this case, Philemon's effectiveness will be to grant Onesimus' freedom. And so in that sense, I suppose, in Mm. the Roman way of thinking, it is kind of financial because Onesimus legally belongs to him, is his property. So he's giving away some of his wealth in that sense. But I actually probably see it as less about the finances and the goods Mm -hmm. of Philemon, but more as, you know, we're partners in this gospel mission together. And so let's see that participation express itself in the way that I'm, (laughs) that I clearly want. (laughs) Right. But it's just an interesting word choice. I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing, which is in you for Christ's sake. And absent the financial possibility, you know, the question I read that and I go, Michael, how is your fellowship of faith effective? That's an interesting thing to scratch my head about. Yeah. No, I think it's a good question. But, you know, well, I read it anyway as meaning, well, it's one thing to acknowledge our fellowship in the faith and to confirm that we are co-workers together, but it's another thing to see the fruit of that. Mm. How is that going to take effect in your choices and in your actions and in your service? So that's how I read it, that this is another way that Paul is sort of saying to Philemon, you know, drawing on your faith and our partnership in that same faith, what is going to be the effective outcome of that? Mm -hmm. What are you going to do Mm -hmm. as a result of that? Talk to us a little bit about verse 16, because I see this, and I never, again, I always resist the key verse or the center verse, you know, because it's the Mm. Word of God. But verse 16 is so laden with so many, you know, so many layers, no longer a slave, more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And for the believer in Christ, we were slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves. We're more than slaves. We're blood. I mean, am I overreading this, Con? Well, possibly. I mean, <laughs> you know, obviously the, the <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I mean, the obvious meaning is Onesimus is the no context, slave, right? He, but, yeah, the context is yeah. he's a slave who's run away, yeah. probably for a yeah. wrongdoing. But the language is so redemptive. You know, you're no longer oh, a slave. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think if you read Philemon against Paul's other letters, which, of course, we should do, it's part of the wider context for the way, for Paul's thought world, you know, then the slavery language and no longer slave. I mean, uh, really Romans 6. Evoke, yeah, Romans 6. Yeah. And, and then the fact that we have substitutionary right. atonement veiled here. You know, If he's done something yeah. wrong, I'll pay for it. Not to mention, yeah. Yeah, whatever it takes, I'll write this off. And again, maybe I'm romanticizing it too much, but this is Romans 6, 7, and 8 to me. It's like, wow, in in two Uh, verses about a person, he's explaining the gospel. I see that there. I think it's a possible reading. I I, I think those sort of (laughs) allusions— You're a good diplomat. No, I guess what I'm saying is I I think it's if Paul means that he's alluding to it, which means it may be correct, but I'm not—can't really be— Certain. You can't but, be bulldogmatic. But, uh, so, I can be dogmatic, but not bulldogmatic, right? 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I certainly think it's suggestive, you know, and I think that's probably how it would be read by Philemon that he's like, well, you know, oh, I did read his letter to the Romans where he's talking about that no longer bring slaves. And oh, wow, it really, you know, this is perhaps an example of what we were just talking about in verse six. You know, it's one thing to be talking about the faith that sets us free, that we're no longer slaves, that we, they're no longer slaves to sin and death and there's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Mm. Well, let's see that become effective. You know, <laughs> what are the practical applications of that? And one application is perhaps what we see in verse 16. He's Onesimus is no longer a slave to sin and death. And so how appropriate is it that he remains a physical piece of property? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah. I guess what I'm saying is I like what you're suggesting. I just think it's probably more in the suggestive category there. Fair enough. Fair enough. Step back with me, Con. And the church today reads this little book. And um, what parallels, what bridges do we make? Can we apply it to current context? And what would that look like? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, we can and we should. I think the big takeaway, there are a couple of big takeaways. One is, I think we get an insight into ministry. So the way that Paul chooses to conduct himself in relationship to Philemon, when he could, as an apostle of Christ, command, you know, I think, and he acknowledges that as we've discussed already, but instead he does not do that. He appeals on the basis of love. And I think he wants Philemon to make his own decision, hoping that Philemon has been transformed you know, in Christ, that his heart has been changed and that his union with Christ and his love of Christ has enabled him to see the inherent value of someone else in Christ as being equal to his own. And I think it's a really interesting lesson in ministry. So rather than coming down heavy-handed and operating in an authoritative sort of way, when we think someone should behave a certain way, but really we want them to behave that way because they've actually been convinced of it or they've actually been transformed or convicted to behave in a certain way, then we Philemon is a great example to look to. And so, you know, I think that has lots of implications for how we, you know, conduct ministry. Mm -hmm. But another major implication I think is that the equality that the letter espouses between slave and master is, as I said before, mind-blowing and world-shattering. And that's no less today. We still have, you know, we have the rich and the poor. We have, you know, dominant ethnicities and then we have minorities. We have, you know, the two-thirds world and the wealthy West. We have all these uh, boundaries and categories that, that tend to devalue people and even closer to home perhaps within the workplace you've got the boss and the employee you've got the chairman of the board and you've got the janitor and Philemon is really showing us that in the Lord in Christ those divisions and those ways of valuing people are torn down they're they're just dismantled they are no longer relevant and not for people in Christ. And so even if those structures continue to exist, say between a, an employer and an employee, there's nothing wrong with that structure. Mm-hmm. You know, the employer might be a believer, 
and the employee might be a believer and one is the boss and the other, you know, is under his or her authority, nevertheless, in the Lord, they are brothers or brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore, they are one together in Christ and the members of the same body. And, you know, I just think that message is still so powerful and has huge implications for the way we see other people, for the way we relate to other people, for the way we operate within the workplace and in in, in other contexts. If we really let the message of this letter soak in, it's a short letter, but it's got a really powerful punch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I find it striking that no matter how theologically we can go high or linguistically we can go deep and minutia, and I love all the above, the practicality, it, the ground of Calvary is level. And yeah. there's no, you know, it doesn't matter your wealth, your status, where you're born. Doesn't matter if you're as smart as Con Campbell or as uh, you know, just a day laborer who's doing a good job. You know, Christ doesn't look at us that way. Yeah, yeah. Now it's a radical. It's a radical message. Yeah. Doctor yeah. Constantine Con Campbell from Down Under. Well, I appreciate your time, and we'd love to get you back on the broadcast on some of your other books and titles in the future, if you'd be willing. I'd love to. That'd be terrific. All right. Well, appreciate your time, Con. Thanks for having me on, Michael. It's oh, been great to chat with you. Appreciate you so much. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.